Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 63, An Unnatural Intimacy, part 1. Hello everyone, it's good to be back. I'm safe and sound back in fabulous Seattle, and we're ready to resume normal service. First, though, we have two bits of bookkeeping. Before anything else, I want to thank the two people who helped me get out my guest episodes, Sam Tominsky and Demetria Spinrad. Sam, as he mentioned himself, is an old friend of mine back from my days as a master's student, and in addition to being a brilliant scholar in his own right, is a very dear friend. So, thank you to Sam for stepping in and helping out. The person who deserves more thanks than any other, though, is definitely Demetria. She stepped in to help me get episodes out, including recording one when it looked like one of our guest episodes couldn't make it, and she went so far as to arrange for me to get files in China when I brought the wrong set of masters with me to that country. Without her help, it's likely I would have gotten three episodes out over the past eight weeks rather than seven. So, a tremendous thanks to both Demetria and Sam. Second, I want to talk a bit about the background for this episode and the ones that are going to follow. You see, originally I had planned, after getting back, to start a series on the history of the relationship between Japan and its closest ally, the United States. I'd also planned for this December a two- or three-part episode on the road in 1940 to 1941, leading from tension over China to Pearl Harbor. The more I thought about it, though, the more I realized that splitting these into two series did not really make sense. A lot of the same characters and tendencies appear in both episodes, so I figured why not just combine them. As a result, this week we're going to be starting our longest multi-parter to date. It's looking like it's going to be at least seven or eight episodes, but I'm not sure because I haven't actually finished writing it yet. I'm about halfway through the process. So, let's get started. This week, we're going to kick things off with the first episode of a multi-part series covering the relationship between Japan and the nation which has arguably done more than any other to shape its modern destiny, the United States. Japan and the U.S. are, in many ways, two of the least similar nations on the planet. Japan is an island nation with a strong sense of racially and nationally bounded culture, and a political culture that prioritizes hierarchy and a cynical and realist view of the world. The United States, meanwhile, is a massive and wealthy continent-sprawling superpower, with a strong ethic of multiculturalism and cultural integration, and a political culture of idealism and liberalism in the sense of democratic and enlightenment values. In the wonderful words of American author Max Brooks, American culture is all about lying in the shit while reaching for the stars. In many ways, no two countries could be more unalike. The great American diplomat George F. Kennan described the U.S.-Japan relationship as, quote, an unnatural intimacy. Two states forced together by circumstance, despite cultures and histories that could not be more different. Circumstance is certainly what drew the two states together. Starting in the 1800s, the two were drawn together by the shared pursuit of one goal, expansionism. The United States has been expanding since it was born in that heady summer of 1776. We don't talk about this much anymore, but one of the grievances of some colonists against the English monarchy was that the English were attempting to restrict American settlement past the Appalachian Mountains in an effort to maintain peace with the native tribes. American expansion continued from then on. 
the original settlement ending the American Revolutionary War in 1783 ceded everything from the east bank of the Mississippi to the U.S., without, of course, consulting the natives, and the floodgates of immigration into this new territory opened immediately. Further expansion followed with the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon in 1803, nearly doubling the size of the U.S. more or less overnight, voluntary secessions from Florida in 1819, the annexation of Texas in 1845, the one-sided beatdown that was the Mexican-American War in 1848, the agreement with Great Britain over influence in the Pacific Northwest, also in 1848, which added, among other things, what would be Seattle to the United States, and finally the Gadsden Purchase of 1853. In other words, in the span of what could have been a single, admittedly fairly long lifetime, the United States went from a coastal power to a continent-sprawling colossus. The U.S. was able to do so for a variety of reasons. For starters, Great Britain after the War of 1812 did not really involve itself militarily in North America, and British backing for the Monroe Doctrine, the American decision to attempt to block European influence in the Americas, meant that the U.S. had no powers opposing it, which could match its tremendous levels of influence, technology, and wealth. Immigration was also part of how the U.S. was able to fill up this vast expanse so quickly. By taking immigrants from Europe, the U.S. was able to populate this huge new territory. Expansion is, of course, not just a territorial phenomenon, it's also an economic one. One of the economic activities so essential to the U.S. was whaling, which was based out of the developed ports of the Northeast, but took place mainly in the Pacific Ocean. The vastness of the Pacific Ocean necessitated restocking points to keep ships supplied, and it was to open up new ports for restocking that the administration of Millard Fillmore decided, in 1852, to force open some islands that had long been closed to unauthorized trade for Europeans and North Americans, Japan. Chosen to command the expedition was Commodore Matthew Calbraith Perry, a hard-nosed and infamously tough veteran commander from the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War, where he had come to the attention of the naval leadership by virtue of his capture of the city of Tabasco. No relation to the sauce, by the way. It was felt that Perry had shown the kind of stubborn and determined behavior that would enable him to break through Japanese stonewalling. Perry was given command of four ships, his flagship the Susquehanna, as well as the USS Saratoga, the USS Plymouth, and the USS Mississippi. They departed from Norfolk, Virginia in 1852, and arrived in Japan on July 8, 1853. The effect of the arrival of Perry's fleet on an ailing Tokugawa shogunate is something we've covered before in other episodes. To recap briefly, Perry gave the Japanese one year to consider his demand for open ports and a treaty of friendship. In a wonderful display of bravado, he personally went to the antiquated defense works outside Tokyo and presented the defenders there with a white flag, saying some variation on, you're going to need this if you're stupid enough to attack me. The Japanese, knowing that they could not resist militarily, knuckled under, though this diplomatic triumph did not come in time to save the embattled presidency of Millard Fillmore, who did not even get the nomination of his party, the Whigs, and had been replaced by Franklin Pierce in 1853. The convention of Kanagawa forced open the ports of Shimoda and Hakodate in 1854. Hakodate, by the way, is one of my favorite cities in Japan. I lived there in the summer of 2009, and it is a beautiful place. I have to say, 
Among all the cities in Japan, the only one I love more is Kyoto. The convention also provided an opening for an American consul, a diplomatic representative, in the city of Shimoda. The man chosen for the job was Townsend Harris, a diplomat who had been attached to the Perry mission and was put in place to negotiate the finer points of the U.S.-Japan trade. Harris was a merchant, a minor politician, and a professional browbeater for the U.S. State Department. Before arriving in Japan, he'd already forced open the Southeast Asian Kingdom of Siam, modern Thailand, for U.S. commerce. It took Harris two years to get the Japanese to hand over everything he wanted. More open ports, specifically Kanagawa, Kobe, Niigata, Yokohama, and Nagasaki. Extraterritoriality, the right of Americans to be subjected to their own law rather than Japanese law. Lowered trade barriers between the two nations and protections for Christian missionaries and converts. He was able to pull it off by threatening that if the Japanese did not agree to his terms, the British and French would come with their fleets and impose much harsher ones. However, if they agreed to the American terms, the Japanese would avoid looking unreasonable and could probably get fairer terms from everyone else. Of course, Harris's terms were not that much better than the ones forced on the Chinese at gunpoint after the First Opium War, but I imagine he did not tell the Japanese that. Speaking of Harris, one of the legends surrounding him involves a Japanese woman who served at his home in Shimoda, Saito Kichi, generally known by the name Okichi. Okichi, so the story goes, was essentially a prostitute who was pressured into having sex with Harris to keep him from defiling the other native women. After he left, she was ostracized for her involvement with the hateful barbarian Harris, turned to alcohol, and eventually killed herself in 1890. Okichi definitely existed and definitely killed herself, but it's unclear what her relationship with Harris was. It's possible she didn't even work for him longer than a few weeks and that they never even met. Regardless, the rumor of her sexual involvement with him was enough to destroy her reputation, and eventually her life. Anyway, once the Americans got a treaty out of the Japanese, the other major European powers were able to do so as well. So why force all these treaties on the Japanese? Well, a large part of it revolved around the strange idealism of the Enlightenment. American values, like the freedom of trade and freedom of religion, were felt to be universal, and those who stood in their way to be barbarians who needed enlightening, at gunpoint if necessary. The Japanese, for their part, responded as we've already discussed, first with the overthrow of the discredited Tokugawa, and then with a massive modernization project that was the Meiji Restoration. The United States did not involve itself in the Boshin War to overthrow the Tokugawa in 1868, unlike the French and British, who backed opposing sides, with the British backing the Imperial faction and the French backing the Shogunate. The Americans were not interested in the fight, both because they felt either side would serve their interests and because they were just recovering, after three years, from the devastating American Civil War. One does detect, however, in period reports on the events by Americans, a certain degree of sympathy towards the more overtly pro-Western imperial faction, and a degree of hostility towards the perceived backwards feudalism of the Tokugawa, but that never really translated into anything other than trade and a few surplus weapons sold to the Japanese as leftovers from the Civil War. Once the war ended with a decisive imperial victory, however, American support became far more consistent. The U.S. was interested in supporting a trade partner, 
as well as countering the growing power of other European states in Asia. Japan could be a bulwark for the United States, so its growth suited U.S. interests well. There was also a perception among many Americans that Japan, which was like the U.S. a rising power, could essentially be brought under American tutelage. Japan could be America's little brother in Asia. And the two rising powers at the opposite ends of the Pacific could come together to create a new world order, or at least a new Pacific order, based on American values of freedom and trade. Thus, the Americans were, in a funny reversal, one of the only ones to support the right of the Japanese to rule their own country. For example, in 1877, Japan was hit by a bad outbreak of cholera, an extremely infectious disease. This particular strand came from China, and the Japanese government declared a medical emergency and quarantines for any ship coming into its ports from abroad to prevent further spreading of the outbreak. The vast majority of Western powers, citing their immunity from Japanese law, refused to comply. Only the Americans, led by the American ambassador John Bingham, enforced the Japanese edict. This, in turn, made Americans very popular in Japan. Also in 1877, the former president of the United States, Ulysses Grant, began a tour of the world, and his final stop before returning to the U.S. was Japan, though it took him until 1878 to get there. Grant was a sensation in Japan. Massive crowds met his ship when it arrived in Yokohama, and the Imperial family sent Grant an offer to dine with them at the Imperial Palace. Grant was one of the few people without official diplomatic status to get such an invite. The American ambassador, John Bingham, was also instrumental in another major step for the Japanese, the abrogation, kind of, of the unequal treaty between Japan and the U.S. Bingham, you see, felt the treatment of the Japanese was utterly unfair. He had been a staunch abolitionist, was one of the chief authors of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which, among other things, established the legal rights of former slaves, and had been the chief justice at the trial of the conspirators who had helped assassinate Abraham Lincoln. He felt that the ill-treatment and disparaging behavior towards Japan was a stain on the honor of the U.S., and pushed the government to establish an equal relationship. The U.S. government, however, was not interested in doing so unless other countries did as well. It was felt, not incorrectly, that abrogating the unequal treaties would put the U.S. at a disadvantage compared to the other Western states when trading in Japan. Instead, Bingham was able to get an agreement in 1883 that the unequal treaties would be abrogated as soon as another country agreed to do so as well. In 1894, when the United Kingdom agreed to phase out its unequal privileges, the United States immediately began to as well. It was not the most principled stand ever taken, but it was something, and it solidified the impression that the U.S. was willing to give Japan a fair shake. The two could be partners in making a new Pacific. However, the early relationship between the two states was not without its rocky moments. Mostly, they came about as a result of Japanese foreign policy. The first real sticking point was what's called the Taiwan Expedition of 1874. We covered this during the episodes on the rise of the Imperial military, but if you want a quick refresher, the Japanese army dispatched a force to punish Taiwanese tribesmen who killed some Okinawan sailors after a shipwreck. After being told by the government of the Qing Dynasty of China it would not punish the tribesmen on Japan's behalf. Every Western power objected to the dispatch of Japanese troops, mostly because they feared it would spark a war between Japan and China and badly disrupt regional commerce. 
In fact, the Chinese didn't really react to the troop dispatch and tried to pretend it never happened. The Japanese, however, ignored the West and in particular castigated the Americans, which is to say politely reminded them, of their hypocrisy. The United States had done the exact same thing when two of its citizens were killed on Taiwan in 1872. The second incident was also something we talked about in a previous episode, a brief skirmish between Japanese and Korean forces on Kanghua Island in 1877. Again, the Western powers objected, again because they feared it would spark a war between China and Japan. The United States, however, was not nearly as vocal as the rest of the Western powers. Likely, that's because... Britain, and to a larger extent France and Russia, had eyes on Korea as a potential colony and were not interested in Japanese competition, and the Americans were not terribly concerned about the fate of Korea as long as it was stable and they could trade there. The Japanese were not a threat to either of these things and could serve as a bulwark against French and Russian influence, so the American government could not get that upset. The one Japanese maneuver which did really upset the United States was the 1882 invitation extended by Japan to the King of Hawaii, and I'm sure I'm going to massacre this name, Kalakaua I. If you're not familiar with Hawaii's modern history, the islands, when they were first discovered by the West, were divided among various regional tribes. However, in 1801, King Kamehameha I succeeded in unifying the islands by virtue of his keen intellect, shrewd diplomacy, and most importantly, his extremely large army. However, he faced very serious threats coming from Western nations looking to make Hawaii, with its strategic position, a Western colony. The Hawaiian monarchy had been living for nearly 80 years with the fear of Western incursion. Its sitting monarch, Kalakaua I, was beginning a plan of modernization along the lines of Japan, to make Hawaii strong enough to forestall just such an eventuality. He went to the Japanese for help and attempted to establish a formal diplomatic relationship, possibly including a marriage alliance between the imperial family and his own royal house. However, the Americans fiercely objected to Japanese involvement in Hawaii. The U.S. government already considered Hawaii to be an American protectorate, and American nationals were heavily employed in the Hawaiian government. The Japanese eventually decided to respect the American claim to Hawaii as being under its influence. While they made nice for Kalakaua, none of his other initiatives came to much. Eventually, Kalakaua's successor, Queen Liliuokalani, was overthrown by American nationals in 1893. These same American nationals then applied for the annexation of the islands into the U.S. The sitting American president, Grover Cleveland, refused to agree but his successor William McKinley was convinced of the wisdom of annexation and incorporated Hawaii into the United States in 1898. The Japanese objected to the overthrow of Luliuokalani, but never did more than protest diplomatically. They did send a ship to enforce Japanese rights in Hawaii in 1897, as there were far more Japanese, some 40% of the island's population, than there were Americans, commanded by the way, by a talented captain named Togo Heihachiro, who would go on to fame and glory some eight years later, when he would lead the fleet that would crush Russia. The arrival of the cruiser, called the Naniwa, provoked the first glimmers of hostility between Japan and the U.S. that I've been able to find evidence for. Some Americans, including someone we'll be talking about quite a bit in future episodes, a naval theorist named Alfred Mahan, began suggesting that the Japanese might be planning to muscle the U.S. out of Hawaii and would have to be fought off. 
Nothing came of the scare, however, because the Japanese had no such intentions. The 1894-1895 war between China and Japan and the subsequent Japanese expansion into Korea was similarly accepted by the United States. Just as the Japanese respected American interests in Hawaii, the Americans respected the feeling in Japan that Korea was legitimately a part of the Japanese sphere of influence and was strategically important enough to Japan that they had a right to have influence there. Meanwhile, in 1898, the United States, in an outbreak of nationalist fervor, declared war on the Kingdom of Spain over Spanish suppression of nationalist rebels in Cuba. The United States absolutely crushed the ailing Spanish Empire in the Caribbean, securing a dominance over Cuba that would last until Fidel Castro. However, for our purposes, the most important outcome of the war was in Asia. The United States Asiatic Squadron, stationed in Hong Kong, was led by its commander George Dewey into Manila Bay, where it seized the Philippines from Spain after over 300 years of Spanish rule. America got control of the Philippines in the peace process, but would have to spend over a decade pacifying the islands. Philippine nationalists wanted independence and felt betrayed by the U.S. occupation. The Japanese response to the occupation was mixed. The Japanese government didn't really want to anger the U.S., but there was a strong strain of pan-Asian nationalism among politically active Japanese, and a great deal of support in Japan for anti-American fighters in the Philippines like Emilio Aguinaldo. Some Japanese, like Miyazaki Toten, who we will be discussing quite a bit in the episodes on Japan's relationship with China, even went so far as to run guns to Philippine revolutionaries. However, they absolutely did not have the permission of the Japanese government to do so. The relationship then was something of a mixed bag. On the one hand, the two rising powers had much in common in terms of striving to establish their place in the world, and the relatively benign treatment meted out to Japan by the U.S. created some goodwill between the two states. On the other hand, both states were increasingly assertive, and these assertive policies began to worry the other. The fate of Hawaii and the Philippines angered many Japanese who believed in Asian nationalism and worried some of the more hard-headed Japanese realists. They began to wonder if eventually, the interests of the two rising nations in the Pacific would clash. However, these two nations were not anywhere close to being on a collision course, at least not yet. In fact, yet another triumph of Japanese-American relations would take place in 1905, when the American President Theodore Roosevelt negotiated a conclusion to the Russo-Japanese War favorable to Japan. Roosevelt himself was actually a huge fan of Japanese culture. He believed Japan was America's best partner in the Pacific and was enthusiastic about traditional Japanese martial arts. The Japanese government even paid to send a judo instructor to the White House to teach him. For now, at least, the friendship between the two rising powers in the Pacific looked secure. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. If you need something to do between episodes and you enjoyed her time on my show, you can also check out Demetria's webpage at dtspinrad.wordpress.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two of An Unnatural Intimacy.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.